I want it to be clearly revealed that I am wearing a name tag on Name Tag Sunday. You cannot see it because it's hidden. I know who I am. Do you know who I am? We'll find out. So, Our, our family, uh, I'm going to state this publicly uh, for my own household, our family has started a tradition each year uh, over the last few years, we've been doing it now, where uh, at, on, around the week of Passover, usually the night before uh, Easter or Resurrection Sunday, we, we go through the ten plagues uh, of Egypt and talk through the importance and significance of what God was doing with that Exodus event. Um, and it's, it's a fun interactive experience where we're, you know, when the plague of flies comes, we're walking on cereal um, and throwing hail at each other. And, and we really it, we make it multi-sensory. Um, the, the blood of the, in the Nile is red jello, uh, and that gets eaten, actually, which I suppose is kind of disgusting if we think it through too far, but don't. So, but I want to talk about that as we begin today, uh, that the, the Israel in Egypt was in bondage. They came on friendly terms, uh, but that changed over the generations. And eventually, we read in the book of Exodus that, that they were... Uh, they're as slaves. And the whole thrust of the book of Exodus is that very word, an exodus out of Egypt when God delivers his people. And so there are those nine plagues that lead up finally to the tenth plague, and each one makes a decisive statement against the perceived gods of Egypt and their lack of power and, frankly, lack of existence And Pharaoh has this hard heart through the whole thing. And he kind of feigns like he's going to let them go at times. But finally, it's the 10th plague that that releases them, that provides that moment of freedom. And that moment, the night before or the night of the 10th plague, is Passover. And we read in Exodus 12. By the way, if you're following along today, I'm going to be in Acts 10. And I encourage you to follow along. But I'm going to have a couple other verses that go with it. So... If we look in in Exodus 12, verse 3, giving instructions to the people for Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, it says, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. They're supposed to take it on the tenth day of the, the first month of the year, Find the lamb, and you can read on further. It's a year-old lamb, male, without defect. It's got to be kosher, is what it is. And then they keep and take care of the lamb for four days. They inspect it to make sure it's in good shape, and it meets the requirements. And then on the 14th day of the month, they actually sacrifice, or they actually kill the lamb to eat the lamb. They take the blood, and they put the blood, which is the life of the animal, And they put it on the doorframe of their house. The reasoning is, when that angel of death comes through Egypt, it's going to take the life of the firstborn in every household. And by taking that sacrificial lamb and allowing it to be sacrificed in place of the firstborn of your household, you're redeeming the firstborn of your household by the life of another that's what's going on in this. And it's supposed, to be, it's supposed to meet these specific requirements. They're supposed to eat in haste with their cloak tucked in, ready to go at any moment when that exodus occurs, when God releases them from bondage to freedom. Literally, when the angel of death comes through, it's going to pass over their house and give them life when they deserve death. That's what's going on in the Passover. 
Bondage to freedom. Death to life. And the Exodus was the thing that was pointed back to over and over. All throughout the Old Testament, every time you read beyond the Exodus, what does it always point back to? When God delivered us out of Egypt. When God delivered us out of Egypt. Do you remember Egypt? God delivered us out of Egypt. From bondage to freedom. From death to life. On the tenth day of the first month of the year, interestingly, that is also the day, the tenth day of Nisan would have been the day in Jesus' uh, time. That's also the day when Jesus rides on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem. Lamb selection day. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On the 14th of Nisan, that's the day when in the temple, at three in the afternoon, they sacrifice the Lamb for the sins of all Israel. Redemption. They deserve death, but instead it's given to someone else and they are given a new lease on life. We read in the book of Matthew, chapter 26, when Jesus is on the cross, 27, excuse me, when Jesus is on the cross, towards the very end of his time hanging there, it says, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And down in verse 50, just a few moments later, it says, and when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Right about 3 p.m., 14th of Nisan, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Bondage to freedom, death to life is what we're given. The final exodus has begun for all of humanity. I want to tell you as we continue on, I want to look at two things. What happened, just as a quick review of what's going on that we're looking back to on this Resurrection Sunday, and more importantly, what does it mean? And so when we talk about what happened, let's go to this Acts 10 passage. Peter is speaking in the home of Cornelius. Peter, a Jew, Cornelius, a Gentile. Uh, If you look at verse 39 of Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches this. He says, We are witnesses of everything he did, that's Jesus, in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. I like to, when we come to this, make sure we know where we are in, in the, the, some objective reality and claims that are being made here. One of the things I like to point out that may seem obvious, but seems less obvious now, um, if you go online and Google, did Jesus exist, you're going to get an awful lot of interesting ideas out there on if Jesus actually existed. Generally speaking, and I take this from a historian's perspective because that's how I'm trained, uh, the history's good that Jesus existed. Uh, You can study it. You can look at it. The sources, uh, that's what a historian does. They look at the sources. They assess the value of the sources, what the sources say. Are they good sources? Are they uh, are so biased? Are they you know, tainted? Whatever it is. And, and when you look at the sources, it's hard to come to a conclusion other than Jesus existed, unless you're trying to kind of take the knees out of the whole argument, but then you're not on good historical grounds. You're just trying to take the knees out of the argument. Interestingly, Bart Ehrman is one of the people that people point to quite often, who's an agnostic biblical scholar, who's one of the most respected in this category of historical Jesus research, He even points out 
if you look at the primary source material, the stuff in the days of Jesus and shortly thereafter, he says the reality is that every single author who mentions Jesus, pagan, Christian, or Jewish, was fully convinced that he at least lived. Even the enemies of the Jesus movement thought so. Among their many slurs against the religion, his non-existence is never one of them. Jesus certainly existed. I, I tell you that because I know that sometimes we're in conversations with people, whether it's around the dinner table at this time of year or other times with family, friends, or even uh, co-workers who might, if you have those conversations, you might bring this into question. It does happen, and it happens more now. But the reality is the history is good on this part. It's, in fact, quite good on this part. If you start bringing into question the existence of Jesus, you're going to bring into question a lot of other things that we take granted historically that nobody questions. The second thing I like to point out about Jesus as we consider what happened is that Jesus made some very bold claims. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And this is not the Jesus we encounter in Scripture uh, is not uh, just a good moral or ethical teacher who has nothing else to do except give us some moral guidelines on how to be better people. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say I am a way, a truth, and a life. That's a big distinction. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I and the Father are one. Massive claim, by the way, of divinity. What's really interesting, though, is, is when he is finally at the point of, of being in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council before the crucifixion, where they're essentially putting him on this sort of sham trial uh, or semi-legal ground trial, in Matthew 26... Uh, you know, Palm Sunday, as if Jesus coming in on the donkey wasn't enough of him actually signaling, I know I'm the Messiah. Now you can kind of see I know I'm the Messiah. I know what I'm doing here. In Matthew 26, Jesus is standing before the high priest who says, hey, you claimed that you could destroy this, the temple and build it in three days. Can you? And Jesus remains silent. And then finally, the high priest says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the long-awaited guy that they've been waiting for in the line of David. Are you that guy? And Jesus says, you have said so. And it's interesting. We could think that Jesus would have just left it there. Yeah, you, you got me. But he doesn't. He drives home the point. He goes on further to the high priest, to the Jewish ruling council. He says, but I say to you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's signaling Daniel chapter 7, one of the prophetic texts everybody looked to for the Messiah. And that person, the Messiah there in Daniel 7, has the power to judge the living and the dead and will rule from sea to sea, basically on par with God. That's who he claims to be. And at that, the high priest tears his clothes because that's what you do when blasphemy is spoken. You, you rip that expensive cloak. You say, how could you? And then they take him and they take this religious charge and translate it to a political charge so that he can actually be killed by the Romans. Jesus made bold claims about who he was. Jesus actually died on the cross. Again, if you do the history work on this one, you find that, that it makes an awful lot of sense historically that this would be what actually occurred. Um, but I want to move on to the next point, that the tomb was actually empty. And I want to point out, just so we're clear on this historical point, people that lived in the ancient world were not stupider than we are now. They believed dead things stayed dead. I mean, I'm assuming everybody in here believes that as well. That's pretty long-standing historical assumption, and people in the ancient world were closer to death and life than we often are. 
they knew the reality that if something dies, especially dies, the violent death of a cross, it's done. It's dead. Yet, scholars that, that dig into, whether they're skeptical or believing scholars that dig into this, all have to contend with, and we do too, the fact that the tomb was empty. Again, the history points to it. The tomb was empty, and there are a lot of interesting theories that people have put forth over the years, from hallucinations to drugs uh, to the women going to the wrong tomb. They would have figured it out eventually. All kinds of theories, and we can even point to some, some of the practices of early Christians to point to the fact that something big happened that changed their practices. Uh, Biblical scholar N.T. Wright points out, if you look just as a couple examples, Jewish saints, what we'd call Jewish saints, are people who had a following. When they died, usually their tombs had shrines set up. We read nothing about anything, even remotely close to that with Jesus. Early Christians, or the followers of the way, changed their practice from the Sabbath to the first day of the week. You go back and research the Sabbath, and you will see that that is not an insignificant change. Something big had to happen to switch from worship on the seventh day to worship on the first day of the week. This isn't a gradual spiritual experience of awakening that they have. They're marking something remarkable that happened on the first day. And, of course, the disciples suffered and died. And you can even see that the, they're trying to figure out what to do with the empty tomb in the days of Jesus. If you read Matthew 28, even the Jewish ruling leaders are trying to put out a rumor that the disciples stole the body. That's, that's what you're to tell them, they tell everybody around them. And that persisted for quite some time, actually, historically. We have to contend with the empty tomb one way or another because the tomb was empty. That's the conclusion that we come to. So what? What does this mean that the tomb was empty? Well, here's where Peter, if you go back to his words, he gives us some insight on what this means. In Acts 10, 42 and 43, Peter says he, again, this is Jesus, commanded us to preach to the people who testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. What we have to understand about what's going on with the events of the death and resurrection of Jesus is that just like in the Passover, what's being done is there's being a a repair is being done in a relationship. Deserving of death is the firstborn, but yet they're redeemed. And and essentially a relationship is restored by the sacrifice of that lamb. When it comes to us, we're all complicit in the issue of sin, which is doing the opposite of what God wants us to do, acting the opposite of what God wants us to do, willing the opposite of what God wills. And so there's something that's broken. Something needs to be fixed. The fancy word that often gets used is atonement which you can break down and make at one mint. We need to put together that relationship. If you want to get really theologically nerdy, it's soteriology if you really want to get into the depths of it. But what's actually happening when Jesus dies and is resurrected can be understood at at multiple levels. And often I find that people stop too high on the level chart. There are people who will say, well, well, what happened with Jesus on the cross? Uh, They'll stop there, first of all, and not worry about the resurrection. They'll say that, that that is metaphorical anyways. 
And, and some people will say, well, what you see on the cross is simply a demonstration of divine love. And we are supposed to emulate that divine love. Indeed, it is a demonstration of divine love. And we ought to emulate that demonstration of divine love. But is that all that actually goes on? And the cross? That it's just a demonstration? No, certainly an awful lot more goes on. What I would suggest to you is that something, what happens with the cross and the resurrection is that something was accomplished that fundamentally has the power to transform who you and I are from the inside out. It's not just something to emulate, but it's something that can change me from the inside. That that's the power of what's going on. That's resurrection power. That's the difference between uh, painting a wall and becoming a new creation. That's the difference between being accepted as a guest in a home and being adopted into the family. There's a difference there in, in what goes on and who you become in the process. This is salvation is what this is that occurs. We're being taken from bondage to freedom, from death to life. And the claim of the cross and the resurrection particularly is that Jesus rose from the dead so you could too. That's what's going on. That is to say what sin broke, God fixed. He put it back together when it was broken. And there are a couple of things that Peter points out that we ought to look at uh, as we look at the total picture of what's, what's occurring in the resurrection and why our faith hinges on today and the events that we celebrate today. The first is that Peter points to that same text Jesus points to, that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. That is, Jesus is not simply judge of, of those who have passed away already, but those who are dead in their sin and those who are alive in the forgiveness that Christ gives. And we have to recognize, if I took a show of hands and asked who's perfect in here, I hope none of you raise your hands, right? Because we know we've made a ton of mistakes. Maybe you've made fewer than I have, but I've made a lot of mistakes. And, and some of those, thank you for laughing, wife. Some of those, <laughs> that's my favorite part of the sermon. We do not possess perfect judgment Example A. So, <clears throat> Jesus does, though. Jesus possesses, but we make judgments all the time. Some of you might even be judging my words right now. That's okay. We make judgments all the time. That's how we survive, frankly. But none of us make it perfectly. We, we take into account everything that's happened behind us in our history, and some of those things are right, and some of those things are incorrect assumptions that we've made along the way. And then we make judgment. We don't make it in a vacuum. Jesus has perfect judgment. He actually has the power that when he comes, he can weigh out how we compare to who God is and who we're supposed to be. And if I may point out then, if we come back to what happened on the cross, if all that happens on the cross is that we have a divine example of love, and that's it, woe to us. The judgment day is going to stink for all of us if that's all that's occurring because you and I can't add up. We never will to divine love. We'll do a lot of awfully good things. Some of us can do some great things. But we can never ascend to the level of God and the perfect judgment and the perfect way of God and goodness and all those things. We're on a death trajectory because of sin, because of the broken relationship we have with God without something coming in to fix that trajectory. That's where we're going. But if Jesus changes the fundamental relationship between us and God, then hallelujah, right? Because that relationship can be repaired, we can be forgiven, 
we can have the relationship put back together with our maker and the lover of our soul. Let me give a couple examples on how this works. Uh, about 18 years ago, I was living in northern Colorado, and they were going through a drought, and uh, somebody had specially formulated a version of paint for your lawn. And, uh, and so there were dry lawns all over this small town I was living in, but every so often you'd pass by a really nice-looking green lawn because it was painted. That's why. So underneath this paint is dead or dying or really struggling brown grass, but it sure looked nice. If that's all we have as a divine example, then we just have a veneer over our, our, our sin of good works. That's great, but it doesn't change the trajectory. Different example of transformation, perhaps. My grandfather, who was a part of this congregation for many years, passed away about 10 years ago at the age of 98. At the age of 97, he got a pacemaker. It was like he got a new battery in him. He went just a little faster when he walked. Not straighter. He was 97. But a little faster when he walked. Something, there was an inner transformation that was going on. Something was going on inside, not just on the outside. Jesus judges the living and the dead, and he can see what's gone on from the inside out. What's been transformed and what hasn't been. What's been fixed and what hasn't. The other thing I want to point out is that the one who believes and receives is certainly saved from death to life. The one who takes this forgiveness that Peter talks about. And it's not just any life, it's abundant life that we're given. And we can see signs of that and what that means in the transformation that can occur in us when we receive that forgiveness and the transformative power of the resurrection. First of all, we see it in Jesus' own body. Sometimes people will make a category mistake. If you know uh, the story of Lazarus, Lazarus was dead, but Jesus calls him out of the tomb. He rises again. And when it comes to Lazarus, that's not a resurrection. That's a resuscitation. What was dead is now reanimated, but nothing has changed fundamentally about the properties of Lazarus. When Jesus comes back, there is something different about Jesus. The wounds that he had from before are there, but they're not holding him down. They're not holding him back. They've created his identity, certainly, and, and informed part of who he is, but, but they're healed, in a sense. They, they aren't bloody wounds that are there. Jesus has different properties. He can still eat, but he can, he can move in a different way when he comes back as a resurrected body. And that's the promise that we're given, the hope that we're given, that... that in this, we're being transformed that one day we can be a part of that, the resurrection of all things in the new heaven and the new earth. All the sinful stuff, all the stuff that's corrupted by sin goes away, and that which has been redeemed is there, put together again. That which is broken is fixed. That's what the resurrection is pointing to. And may I say, if this life is all that there is right now and there is no hope, then why are we sitting here? Why aren't we out, eat, Drink, be merry. Why are we even bothering with morality? Because there's no one to answer to in the end. Why bother with any of that stuff? Unless we believe that there's something more. There is a hope. The resurrection shows us that with Jesus, really big things are in store. Restoration for that which is broken is coming. This isn't just some spiritual 
or moral ascent that's going on. This isn't just enlightenment. You can be a better you tomorrow because you tried harder. Those are all good things. I love enlightenment. I love reading more. I'm reading six books right now at the same time. Ask me later if I finished any of them. But that's more, more going on here than just our moral ascent or spiritual something. There's a transformation that's got to go on to lead us towards that hope and to make that hope a reality. Second thing we discover about abundant life is the issue of restored relationships. The, the fundamental things that are broken by sin and our complicity in sin and our activity in sin and the curse of sin beyond that, the stuff that we didn't even do but affects us, uh, besides our own brokenness in body in many ways, uh, the brokenness with our relationship with God, the brokenness in our relationship with one another, and then with the created, created order itself. Those things are all broken. Those things are all set on a trajectory to be restored by the resurrection and the power of the resurrection and what God has done there and offers to us. Does that mean every broken relationship in our lives is going to be fixed? No. Does that mean the potential is there? Absolutely. By the power of God working in us? Yes, it's possible. And look, for example, at Peter and Cornelius here. Peter is thoroughly Jewish. Walked around with the Jewish rabbi for all those years, Jesus. He eats kosher. His home is holy. Peter is called, at the same time that Cornelius is called to call for Peter, Cornelius is a Roman soldier in that pagan army you wouldn't want to have anything to do with if you were Jewish. You wouldn't go into their home, for goodness sakes, especially not a soldier's home. And yet Peter is called to go to Cornelius' home, and you can see the awkward interchange they have when they even meet. They don't even know how to interact with each other, even though Cornelius is interested in this Jewish thing and the Messiah that comes with it. When, when they come together, Cornelius bows down before Peter, which is a sign of respect on Cornelius' side. And Peter says, whoa, I'm not a god. Get up. Don't worship me. They, can't even, they don't even speak the same language. One's kosher and holy and one's totally pagan. So important, though, is the power of the resurrection in what's going on here that Luke, as he writes the book of Acts, how many times does he tell the story? Twice. This is such a cataclysmic, remarkable event that's going on. He allows it to be told in chapter 10 and chapter 11. You read the whole thing. Some of us probably get annoyed. We're like, I just read this story by the time you get to chapter 11. Peter almost recites it verbatim. But it's so significant. This doesn't signal universal salvation, by the way. This doesn't signal that just because Jesus died, now we're all saved without doing anything. That's not at all what it says. It signals that something different has changed. The tent that covered Israel in the Old Testament was always wider than they thought. It, all, it covered more people than they thought. And now, as if Peter didn't realize that, God says that the tent pegs go way farther than you thought, buddy. They go super far out and even further. The Shekinah glory that would have been in the Holy of Holies, the middle of the temple, only there kind of reserved for the high priest to kind of have interaction with, now has been unleashed in Jesus Christ, the great high priest. We need no other intermediary. We don't need the priests, uh, Israel, to function as priests in the same way anymore. They're functioning in a different way. The church now is functioning in a different way. Jesus is our high priest who goes before God on our behalf. And what we discover is that not only do we have a hope, but even in this life, nothing is beyond the power of God to restore. Does that mean everything's going to be restored in this life? Absolutely not. We get signs pointing to the hope. But for those of us who take that forgiveness, we get a lot more of those signs in our lives. A lot more of that reality. 
And what really happens is the third thing that I would point out is that we are transformed. We get transformed lives in the process. We talked about painting the grass, the veneer that could go over us, even if we do really good things. But Isaiah points out to us in, in his prophecy that even the good works uh, are of people who are perishing are like filthy rags. You can do the greatest things in the world, but it's still not going to be enough. And if we're doing that, if we're doing good works, if we're just emulating the love that Jesus gives on the cross, that's good, but we end up just mimicking divine love. We end up fooling ourselves in a deceptive life. We're powered by pride, living a parody of the kingdom, not the real thing. What a sad existence we end up in. We're just living a parody of the kingdom. We're good. We may even be really moral, but we're dying. We're not transformed. No, indeed, when we're forgiven, when we're put right with God, all of a sudden it begins to transform our very interpretation of the world around us and what God is doing, our worldview. Eighteen years ago when I was living in that place where they painted their lawns, I was working for a small Bible college. I lived in the dorms with the students, but they also needed somebody to do maintenance, and I was the only one they had that had the time to do it during the day. Poor choice, but I had to do it because that's, I just, that's not my thing. I, I, at the time, I'd never owned a home. I was, I was single. I lived in a dorm room and had for years by that point. Um, and so, you know, repairing something in a dorm room is not the same as doing maintenance at a multi-building uh, facility. So I, ha- I went to Home Depot an awful lot and the local hardware store an awful lot. And going into that place back then was an oppressive experience for me. It was just not joyful. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm looking for. I got to talk to the guy and you can't find the guy to talk to to find out what you need. It just was an awful experience for me. Now I'm in my second home. You know, we had one in Colorado. Now we have one here. And going to those places is a rather joyful experience. Why my worldview has changed. I can see the possibilities. I can see the things that can need to be done and that could be done. It's really fun to go to those kinds of places. There needs to be a transformation in who we are. We'll see things differently because of that, with that forgiveness and the redemption that comes through the cross. So where does that leave us? One of the other things that we should point out about uh, the Passover meal that was celebrated generation upon generation. I mean, they celebrated this and marked it every year. Even today, there are Jewish homes that are marking the Passover this week or have done that. One of the things that's important about Passover is that you also need to to not eat anything with yeast in it that week. And especially, you need to rid your home of all yeast products. Get out the old yeast. That's what you're supposed to do. In fact, a little game uh, came up over time where where on the 14th of Nisan, Lamb lamb Redemption Day, where they sacrificed the lamb, on that day, somebody off in the head of the household would hide like a roll or something with yeast in it, and they all searched through the home to get that last bit of yeast out to mark that moment when we got all the old yeast out. Whenever you read about yeast, except for one time I can think of in Scripture, when Jesus uses it and twists the meaning in a really interesting way, yeast is always a negative thing in Scripture. It, it always indicates the pride of the ego at work in us that can take control really quickly. It can, it can balloon out of nowhere, and then all of a sudden, it's got full control. That's why they're getting out the yeast. Get out the old yeast. It's not going to be any good. Start over with fresh, unleavened bread this year as you go forward. Paul makes a connection with this in the Passover lamb as we round this out this morning in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. Starting at verse 6, he says, Don't you know that a little yeast 
leavens the whole batch of dough. And he's using it in the traditional negative sense. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness as pride, sin, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, with the transformed power of Christ working in us. Our worldview will change when we're transformed in that way. When I became a parent, my worldview changed. I mean, the moment you hold that child and you realize you're responsible for this child, your worldview changes. All of a sudden, time looks different. Sleep looks different, right? And how you utilize that time related to sleep, the input I take in and the output I put out, what they're going to hear, what's around, even the, the things that I, I see, I have little patience for some of the media I see out there because I have a completely different worldview at this point because I've been transformed by that. That's what's supposed to happen to us by the forgiveness given through Christ, that it starts to work in us and transform us from the inside out. Salvation is at hand. If you want your next step, Get rid of the old yeast, anything that's still within you that blocks that business of atonement and the ability to be one with Christ again, to be unified with your maker and put right in relationship with God, with others, and his world. Get rid of that. Seek the forgiveness that only God gives. And the resurrection hope begins now. Let's pray together. God, deliver us. Just as it was celebrated in the Passover year in and year out and continues to be celebrated, get rid of the old yeast that's in us. Redeem us that we are deserving only of death, but give us life instead. Take away that which blocks you from our presence, that keeps us out of communion with you, the one who knows us better than anybody, who loves us better than anybody who has ever been created who knows us even better than ourselves, Father, restore in us the joy of your salvation that we would know who you are. Deliver us from bondage to freedom. Restore in us hope, relationship, and life. Transform us. We pray this all in your name. Amen.